0: Welcome to episode 142 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Rimminson, And with me is the professor, Peter Van Onsen. G'day, Pete. G'day, Hugh. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. And I've got to say, it's a disturbing little period at which we sit down to chat because the images coming out of Alice Springs are fresh in mind. Mm. Prime Minister going there, a whole bunch of immediate actions that, that they've got underway. But the thing which has totally stood up in my mind and the thing which has disturbs me a great deal was a comment that Linda Burney made, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, as it's now styled. She says that there are 16 intensive care beds in Alice Springs Hospital. 14 of the 16 beds in Alice Springs Hospital right now are inhabited by women who've been the subject to domestic violence to the point that they're in intensive care. That is such a staggeringly cold and awful statistic. Plenty driving it, a lot of alcohol, a lot of other disturbances with all kinds of roots in the, the, the deep centre of our country.
1: And Hugh, those crime stats uh, that we've reported on 10 News, uh, that's been reported widely in the media from the last year, year-on-year year increases, it was domestic violence, and it was alcohol-related assaults that were two of the highest growth areas in crime coming out of Alice Springs. So that speaks to what the minister was highlighting there as well.
0: So somewhere in there, and you can see them reaching towards this, there needs to be somewhere between the sort of full-end boots and all, some would argue, boots and all federal invention that we saw under John Howard, and a, a kind of hands-off approach with you know, restrictions being lifted off alcohol and so on, which also hasn't worked. This is a very hard needle to thread between giving people empowerment over their own lives, community empowerment over their own lives, but also just simply protecting people and keeping them alive.
1: And it is complex and it shouldn't be a political or a left or right debate, but inevitably some of the pressure points on both sides of that come into it and have to be managed by the policymakers who, who need to try to find what, what I would call a non-partisan or a non-ideological solution to these problems. And let me give an example of that. So on the right, uh, it's often, you know, law and order, more people being, having the book thrown at them, or it's, you know, just simply banning alcohol, uh, as we've seen that debate manifest uh, in the wake of the Prime Minister's visit as well. They, they see it as a sort of almost simple binary choice with a black and white outcome in that sense, so to speak. Now, I think that ignores the social complexity. We heard the Northern Territory Police Commissioner making the point that the jails are full, but even if they weren't, you can't just see this as a simple throw-the-person-in-jail response. I think all of that is true. But I also think that there's a tendency, and I'm going to upset both left and right listeners here, I also think that there's a tendency sometimes on the other side of that ideological debate to have a similar rigidity and unwillingness to 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 be all encompassing in how you respond. And I, let me give this example, which might be controversial, but I, I remember seeing some months ago reports about uh, the police not adequately doing their job when it came to Indigenous communities. I think it was in Queensland because Indigenous women suffered domestic violence at ten times the rate of non-Indigenous women.
0: I believe it's higher. I've heard 35 times the rate for, for hospitalizations because of domestic violence. Well,
1: well that, even, that, that will sort of speak to my point even more. And I, I have no doubt from anecdotally what I've read as well as statistically what I've looked at, that there are policing issues that contribute to that. But surely the main contributing factor to that is that, in, and it won't always be the case, but that Indigenous men are also multifactored at higher rates, more likely to commit domestic violence, you have to be willing to not be politically correct about addressing that. And it's complex. It's not a case, and this is the whole reason why you then have to look at the right in response to that, saying, yeah, that's the problem. Don't blame the police. Throw them in jail. That's wrong too. But both sides need to sit down about this, in my view, and say, look, we can't be too politically correct when it comes to acknowledging the problem and calling it out, but we equally can't then become you know non you know if you like non nuanced in trying to solve it in a way that is not just simply throwing the book at indigenous men in that example and and that's what a lot of indigenous elders literally in the last 24 to 48 hours have been making this point that you need to include indigenous communities you need to not be shy with money you need to be willing to be multifaceted in the approach to this unfortunately too often when ideologues join the discussion they are unwilling to acknowledge certain harsh realities that are perhaps not politically correct to acknowledge, but they are also too quick on the other side of it to want to see this as just a simple solve by filling up the prisons. It's much more complicated than that. And, and look, I'm no expert in this area, Hugh. You've, you've covered these sort of issues much longer than I have. But observing this you know, for decades and decades, I'm aghast just as an average citizen looking at it, saying how much... Time and energy and thought has gone into this over how many years for it to only be worse than it was? It's funny because
0: uh, it's, it's not remotely funny, but underlying it all is trauma, I think. And I've had a lot to do, particularly in the last decade, with military veterans mm. who have been traumatized by wartime experiences. And two things are symptomatic, they tend to be consistent symptoms. One is a tendency to self medicate often with alcohol, sometimes with other substances, sometimes with many substances, but often alcohol. And then the other manifestation is often a quickness to anger. And people who have gone through traumatic experiences, profound traumatic experiences, may may well find that in their own behaviours, there's a desire to numb it with alcohol, and there's that quickness to anger. And then you look at the generational trauma of First Nations Australians, including violence that they might have seen or been subjected to as children growing up. Yep. There is trauma that is deeply written into communities in remote Australia, Aboriginal Australia. And why would Aboriginal people be different to any other people? When subjected to trauma, the likely outcomes are going to be alcohol and anger. Mm. So you, you can fix that or attempt to fix it symptomatically, chuck people in jail, remove their alcohol. But in the end, it doesn't get a solution without a long, deep look at the trauma and how you deal with the trauma.
1: It almost artificially suppresses the numbers to make people feel like they're solving a problem. But all it's doing is kicking the can further down the road. It's interesting, Hugh, like, I mean, yesterday when i was reporting on on the statistics that were coming out of northern territory police about the huge increase we're talking about increases in the high 40s to low 50% right across assaults domestic violence alcohol related crimes you know retail break and all these sorts of figures the first thing I, I, I did was wanted to make sure that this wasn't some sort of blip change so i thought to myself well it's a year's worth of, of increase an increase over a year's worth of reporting is that because we had uh, the pandemic for a couple of years before that that had, you know, sort of somehow reduced it or artificially depressed the number? So, you know, very good team in Canberra. We, we got the data going right back uh, over the course of a five- to ten-year period to ascertain that, no, that's not the case, because often, you know, if, if they're sort of tabloid reporting, if I could put it that way, it doesn't look at the true meaning of the stats. These are real increases that are not artificially propped up By a suppressed rising crime over the course of the pandemic, when you look at a more uh, long-form set of numbers over the previous five to ten years, so it is something that needs to be looked at. Now, it's more complex than that. If you try to correlate the numbers to things like the alcohol ban or adjustments in federal policy when it comes to Indigenous affairs since Labor's got in, the opposition doesn't want to discuss that nuance, but it is much more nuanced than that. But what is not requiring of of that sort of nuanced debate is that this is a spike in crime. So now we have to talk about what to do about it. And, you know, as we've been saying, it, it's, it, there's no simple solution uh, and simply locking. Look, it may well be that that's your first step, and that's what Anthony Albanese almost was alluding to with some adjustments around alcohol consumption. The first step is to try to do something for the short term to put some downward pressure on, on what's happening. But then, having done that, you don't sort of wash your hands of it and say, great, we've reduced... The, the number of assaults and domestic violence, assaults and all the rest of it, so therefore we move on. It's when that media glare moves on that the public policy makers can't move on, but they have to really roll their sleeves up and get something done.
0: Well, it's interesting that they've got a very short time frame for this new regional commander that they've established, Arrell Anderson. She's got a week to report back on further things that might be needed. Linda Burney saying nothing is off the table, so there's plenty a sense that uh, this is something that needs whatever it needs mm. to get it going. I just wonder about Peter Dutton, whether he deserves some credit for making this a national issue. Because in a sense, the violence in any small town can easily be quarantined within that town, uh, you know, you know being a localized issue. He made it a national issue. He badgered the prime minister to go there. He offered to go there with the prime minister. Ironically, Peter Dutton hasn't himself gone there, but the prime minister has. Does he deserve some credit for being, uh, you know, an early warning system on this?
1: unless we can hook him up to a lie detector machine and ask him some rather pointed partisan questions, I don't know what the answer to that is. And I don't say that to be critical of him, to be clear, because if you ask one group of people that are down on Dutton, they will say he just did this deliberately for partisan political gain. It was dog whistling. It was designed to undo and damage the voice. Okay, That will be their view. And unless we can know what is in his heart and his head, we can't be certain whether that's true or not. Equally, what you say is is also right if his heart and head are in the right place, which is that naysayers can have that view of him, but in fact, he has contributed to drawing national attention to it. He has contributed to getting the Prime Minister there. I know the PM said that he was planning to go there before he caught COVID in December, but it doesn't change the fact that there was no firm date affixed in the aftermath of him getting COVID. It was deprioritised in the wake of him having COVID and not going, if you believe him, that that was in place already. So, yes, Peter Dutton, if his heart and head were, are in the right place, then he absolutely deserves credit. But people are going to be divided on something to which they can never ascertain the, the truth about on whether that was through good or ill intent. And you need to know that before you can decide whether to pan him or praise him.
0: Do you have a gut feeling that this, these scenes that we're seeing will tend to galvanise people towards support for the voice or are you picking up something else out there where people say, look, a voice is going to make no difference to this stuff?
1: Yeah, I, look, that's, that's the, the, almost the tragedy of this is that I'm, I suspect the latter. I, I, you know, with a heavy heart, I suspect the latter because uh, it's not a binary choice. We can do something about examples of what's happening in Alice Springs, which, by the way, the Northern Territory Police Commissioner made the point that similar issues and rising crime stats In Indigenous communities and in regional areas is happening right around the country in parts of WA, parts of Queensland, not just in Alice Springs, not even just in Alice Springs, within the Northern Territory parts of regional New South Wales as well and so on. But yeah, I tend to think that these issues could conflate and you can walk and chew gum at the same time, the same way that you can make both symbolic and practical changes. And the voice isn't just symbolic. It's a conversation we've had both on the podcast and privately. But I worry that, yeah, that that they could well get conflated and the argument that some of the voice naysayers might have, and they might have other reasons to have concerns about the voice. We've talked about those on this podcast. I've written about them in the newspaper. But conflating we just need to get the real problems fixed, like in Alice Springs, rather than bother with the voice, that's a BS argument. There are other arguments that I'm open to hearing, both for and against the voice, sure. Uh, in, t- in terms of how it might, might be designed and all the rest of it. We don't need to go into that. But that's a BS argument. Unfortunately, though, I think it might resonate.
0: It's interesting. Just, just as we close off this section of the conversation, uh, Senator Pat Dodson, uh, sometimes called the father of reconciliation, has said that uh, a representative entity for this part of the world, he was standing in Alice Springs at the time, speaking directly to Parliament, would be a big improvement. He, he says that it argues more strongly the case for The Voice. You might expect him to say that. Look, We've got lots to talk about. When you talk about walking and chewing gum, there's actually a whole bunch of other policy issues. We'll just take a quick break. Back in a second. Welcome back. This is episode one hundred and forty-two of the Professor in the Hat. Great to have you with us. So. Alice Springs aside, The Voice aside, another major thing has happened. And that is that we've heard from Mark Butler, the health minister, the first indications that there is going to be something which goes to the heart of everyone's lives in this country. And that is the state of public health, of Medicare. And it looks like there's major reform coming.
1: Look, it does. I'm I'm worried in offering some views on this because we were discussing it before we started that I'm going to sound like I'm plagiarizing your thoughts where we were Of one mind about this. So let's let's give both of us equal airtime on this. It's it's interesting, isn't it? If they get it right with some of these changes, and and what we're really talking about here is, you know, instead of always seeing a GP who gets the Medicare funding, you can see a nurse, a physiotherapist, even potentially a pharmacist, or, or any number of other allied healthcare professionals under a new reinvigorated Medicare structure which might be more fit for purpose. In other words, with limited access to GPs, with there being a bigger gap between what they want to charge versus what they get paid formally by the government, which means bulk billing is, is slowly dying, you can therefore go to a, a different person, get a, a wound treated by a nurse who's fit for purpose, get an injection by a nurse, talk to a physiotherapist uh, rather than having the two-step process without Medicare in the second half to the same extent, going via a GP when they're already, you know, sort of, if you like, struggling for time. Get it Right. And it's great. It's revolutionary. It could save money as well as improve healthcare outcomes. Get it wrong, and it costs even more because you're giving more people and more health professionals access to public funding. And it could make a bad situation worse at the same time as costing more because you can start to have people potentially ferried off to get lesser quality of care from lesser qualified, I suppose you could say, healthcare professionals. So, a lot riding on this. It is a totemic reform assuming it all happens. It could well be contested, but there's a big difference between getting this one right and getting this one wrong.
0: Interesting a force to Labor to do it, but, but let's go to the essential question. What is the problem they're trying to fix with Medicare?
1: Just quickly on that, I, I'd, I'd like to hear your view on that, but I, I think it is interesting that it's come to Labor to do this. I feel like that's the only way. This is one of those issues where almost the only way. If the Liberals tried to do this, they'd be accused of dismantling Medicare and it would become a scare campaign. When Labor tries to do this, because there's public confidence in Labor when it comes to health, there's more chance of being able to get it done and therefore hopefully get it right. It's, it's almost like, and Hawke Hawk and Keating were the big contrarian views to this, the exception that proved the rule. You know, it's easier for the coalition to get things done on economics and it's traditionally easier for them to get things done on national security, whether you like or dislike what they do because they're trusted in those spheres, just like it's easier for Labor to get things done on health. And education will be the other one, where Jason Clare also seems to be sniffing around. What's your view, though, on the Medicare thing? I mean, where do you think the big changes lie?
0: Well, I think, first of all, you've got to look at the problem you're trying to fix. And I think the problem that plainly exists at the moment is that the GP has become the choke point. Yep. So uh, we've been raised for a generation to believe that if you get sick, you go to a GP. In fact, the GP represented primary health care. And the arguments all went that primary health care is the key to good health on a population basis. You go and you get your checkups, you're getting your heart health checked as you go in. you're looking for things that might indicate your likelihood to get cancer, and the GP is the person you go to. It is assumed as part of that model that you can get to a GP, both that you can get an appointment and secondly that you can afford to go to the GP. When you had bulk billing substantially followed across the country, the cost element was was not an issue, so people could get to a GP. Increasingly though, we've seen, for a whole bunch of reasons, both of those things fall over. One is that partly because the, it was initially Labor that brought it in as a temporary measure, but then the coalition governments made it a permanent measure, of freezing the amount of money that GPs got when you went to see them. Mm. So that essentially every year, their value of seeing people was dropping, their wages frozen.
1: They either get paid less or they increase the gap, which means that bulk billing goes down and people have to pay more to go see a doctor, which means some people don't. And both of those things have been happening. And One of the consequences
0: of that is, is that doctors have done their seven years, by the time they've done their clinical years, come out and they look at GP work, and it's not that well-paid. It's certainly not as well-paid as it once was. It doesn't have the same status in the community. So they're kind of going, you know what, I don't want to do this, sit. They specialize. Yeah, sit in a room with a lot of sick, miserable people coming in every day where you're doing the same thing over and over again. It's not satisfying. So you specialize, which is where the money still remains in the system. So GPs are not in the system. So the supply of that medical access is disappearing on one level. At the same time, where they're trying to claw back their money, they're increasing those gap zones. So the, uh, the ability for, for people, particularly on, on lower incomes, or those with families and so on, where you, where you wind up getting quite a few medical costs is in the course of the year, you start not being going to the doctor. So the primary healthcare model, which underpinned Medicare for so long, has now really, it hasn't collapsed, but it's, it's not working, it's dysfunctional. So you have to deal with that. I come, my mum was a nurse. So was mine. There you go. <laughs> and we know what the value is in, in nursing. And so many of the things that I might go to a doctor for or my take my kids to, I'm fairly confident could be looked at by a nurse. W- where a nurse might also say, you know what, this one is outside my, you know, part of a nurse's skill is to say, about this, I do not know.
1: Yeah, but it's, it's, it's in, I mean, that's exactly right. Like, I, I, my mum was a nurse who became a matron of a hospital and... You know, I saw a GP, I suspect a lot less than other children did because most things she was solving. I remember her sewing up a friend of mine who who required stitches you know, on site. I'm not sure that would have happened these days. But nurses can do a lot, but it's also knowing what they can't do, which is important too. And that's where if it's done properly, it can save a lot of costs and it can open up the universality of our healthcare system in a way that through the funding structures, makes it more fit for purpose. But it, it, it may not do that as well, and it may lower care, and it may make it cost more, ironically, at the same time if, if, they, if they get it wrong. So the fit has to be right. One of the things in, in the reporting of this that I've seen is it's like this idea of, oh, well, there's not enough GPs and there's too much of a gap so you can bring nurses in. There's always been a nurses shortage too. It's easier to fill than the GP shortage, not just because the training isn't as, as complex or uh, as lengthy, but also because it's easier to essentially steal nurses from abroad who come and work in Australia and take advantage of wanting to live in a place like Australia. That's long been the case. But we do have to be cognizant of that as well, where you've already got nurses shortages. You could be exacerbating that problem here.
0: Sure. So I think one of the things which ends careers for nurses is that they get sick of the shift work at hospitals. Mm. This would help fix that. And that would help fix it. So what I think could happen is that you see nurses as they get seniority Their experience is up at a good level. They're no longer, you know, feeling able to to manage that that shift work load. They have their own family responsibilities and they may well be attracted to better hours using their experience in a different way. So I think, they're, as you say, run well, this could be a tremendous thing. There are a lot of rent seekers
1: as well. And that's always an issue in in public policy.
0: Everyone wants their money. Oh, well, yeah, we we can help you with that one, but we'll need this amount of money.
1: Yeah. Well, that's where public-private partnerships become an issue. You know, like what gets sort of quasi-privatized, what doesn't. Yeah, this notion that the private sector is more efficient than the public sector might be sometimes true, but sometimes the rent seeker elements, when there's public money injected into it, can change that equation. We've seen issues in the aged care sector, frankly, that, that overlap with some of that or can overlap with some of that. So there's some really interesting pressure points there. At the core of this though, something that health professionals have long talked about is that preventative care costs more but saves you more in the long run. So all of this has to be geared towards whatever change happens is not shouldn't shouldn't just be about short term fiscal situations or or short term plug-in of holes and problems and gaps in the system. It should also be about setting up something that's fit for purpose to be able to ensure better preventative care for all those massive long-term benefits that that creates as well.
0: And I'll just finish this one off, perhaps with an anecdote from my own mum, because as she aged, she got heart failure and she was in New Zealand. So she, she went to the hospital, because she was in her late eighties at the time, she was not in the public system in New Zealand entitled to see a cardiologist. So here's a woman with heart failure. Wow! But you don't get to see a cardiologist on the public health system once you're over 75, the cardiologist is a, is a finite resource. And because heart failure on one level will carry off roughly half of all of us, cardiologists could be spending all their time dealing with people who are 88 years old and dying.
1: I wonder how Australians are going to respond to that because I can see the pragmatism of that. Absolutely. And the same goes, you can apply it to all sorts of other areas, yep. but it also means that money talks, doesn't it? Well,
0: you, can, you, can, you could still go private. And go and see a cardiologist and see have private cardiologist and so on. But in the public health system, it doesn't work. But that's what I mean. If you've got
1: money, you can do it. If you don't have money and can't pay or are unwilling or have a family that won't pay, but then but, you don't get access. So here's how it actually worked. Because so
0: many people have heart conditions, there's an enormous amount of science that is known. So what happened is my mum was passed off to her local doctor, but also with what they call heart nurses. There is so much that is known about the heart, that a lot of it is about tweaking drugs and diet and fluid intake and so on to take pressure off the heart so that it keeps on going. My mum had the last two, two and a half years of her life with heart failure, managed fundamentally by a nurse in her community. She didn't live in a big town. She lived 45 minutes, 50 minutes outside a town. With her local doctor occasionally coming in to deal with things to keep checkups, et cetera, was essentially managed by a nurse. Hmm. And she stayed broadly well until the last weeks of her life when she went into a, in, you know, to the, to the final phases. And that made me realize, because I was appalled at the thought that she couldn't see a cardiologist, but there are other ways to do
1: it. But again, this brings us back to the point the scare campaigns in that are risky, and there's something that probably, in my view, labor are more able to overcome in this policy space than the liberals would have been able to
0: it leaves your cardiologists able to say deal with those rare cases say a teenager with with a heart condition or or those people people in their 40s and so on a couple of quick things inflation
1: figures are coming as we go to air they're just about to come out in the next hour so we can't really talk about them specifically but but pretty much whatever happens you i mean we can wrap this one up in 30 seconds whatever happens interest rates are going to continue to go up the issue is do they go up another two or three times or do they go up as many as four or five times? Depending on where it sits, it depends on whether they'll continue to go up past the May budget or not, and whether they'll get a cash rate above 4% or just below 4%. Expectations are that inflation is still minimally rising, but slowing in its rise. So in other words, we're not going to get to the peak of 8% that was originally forecast by Treasury. It's more likely to come in at around 7.5% as a peak. We'll wait to see. But the, the main thing that matters here is what that paired back rate was. You've got to pull out all the other elements that are sort of higher than they would normally be, like petrol, for example, and some groceries. That's what the Reserve Bank will be looking at. But there's an inevitability about higher interest rates uh, when the Reserve Bank meets at the start of February. It's more just going to be a case of seeing how much worse the situation will get on that front.
0: You did it in 30 seconds, well done. And, uh, and in just a little over 30 seconds, the New South Wales election comes galloping up. It's uh, less than two months away. Interesting that uh, on the polling that's available to us, and uh, we take all the usual caveats around polling, particularly with state elections. But it seems as if Labor has strengthened its position to take over, which would mean that uh, if that was to flow through, every mainland state would become a Labor jurisdiction. Interestingly enough, the Premier of New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet, on the current polling is still more popular than his challenger. So, if the coalition goes down in New South Wales, it won't be because of the Premier, and that's after the Nazi well, let's, let's, revelation. let's see so.
1: if a photo uh, reveals itself during the campaign and how his popularity looks. Look, uh, I'm torn on this one. At one level, uh, I've written about this many years ago, at one level, all, opposition preferred Premier ratings at the state level, borderline meaningless. You know, Jeff Gallup was in the teens in opposition. Brax was in the low 20s. Bob Carr was nowhere. And then they all went on to become both popular and long-term premiers. Mike Rann was, was seen as a complete joke. He was in the low teens before becoming a popular premier and a very long-serving one in South Australia at that. So at one level, they're meaningless. At another level, the fact that he's still more popular than Chris Minns, despite some of the things that have happened, despite multiple premiers serving before him, never being elected before, the circumstances of when he took over, being in the hard right end of the Liberal Party and all the rest of it coupled with chris minns being somebody that often gets talked about as the great hope of the labor party and you know sort of charismatic you know ivy league educated out of the u.s you name it nice hair it's interesting isn't it that it's, it's normally a relatively meaningless stat but given those permutations it's just interesting and it makes yes. you wonder whether It'll give people pause for thought closer to polling day or not.
0: Yeah, on that basis, Mins is doing particularly well. And, and it is true that once you become a premier, it doesn't matter whether it's New South Wales or anywhere else, you're in the nightly news cycle every night because whether it's, you know, your, your buses are running badly or you're announcing a new road that's been gone through. Yep. Part of the job of a premier is to be in everyone's faces every single day. So, you know, for better or worse... People just
1: don't know the alternative generally. Yeah.
0: So, look, it's interesting. I would say right now it looks difficult for uh, Don Perrottet. And I have to say, Perrottet's handled himself pretty well, I think. But if you look behind him, it's a bit like the old... Um, well, they've all quit, haven't they? All, They're all, all leaving the at the election. The, well, a lot of the good ones are actually leaving, which is, you know, the, the, the people like Rob Stokes and Victor Dominello, who are sort of solid ministers doing, doing solid work. No smell, sniff of corruption or anything weird about them.
1: It'll be 12 years in government as well. I mean, state politics, particularly in New South Wales, it tends to be more of a Labor state. The reason that they've got 12 years is not because they're not a good government. They've had plenty of good about them. But the previous 16 years of Labor government was well and truly past its use by date. It won one election too many. It did. In terms of you know maximising its chance of getting back quickly.
0: It Maximised its chances of getting pinged for corruption uh, by ICAC. That was its main problem before, but it seems... Maybe that is all washed through in the minds of the, of the punters. And uh, and we could wind up with uh, coast to coast,
1: sea to shining sea, Labor red. Well, we all have to move to Tasmania if we're diehard Liberals then, Hugh. I'm not moving to Tasmania. That's not a partisan comment. It's not an attack on Tasmania either. Uh, but I love Tasmania. I, I, I would move there in retirement, but I can't convince my wife. So.
0: Well, put it this way, right now, you'd have to, you'd join the rush, you know, <laughs> you know all, all the, uh, the, the movements down there. The fact that Hobart, this is a total, I remember when Perth real estate was through the roof and you could have bought half of Hobart for the change in your pocket. And I can tell you that has changed enormously <laughs> over the last few years. So,
1: so less like the, the well known economist moved there at the right time
0: yes Doug Cameron the the, the you know the Labor is he down Labor there now senator as well, is yeah he? yeah he packed up New South Wales he's moved down there
1: I just love I love the cold with the ability to get away from it from time to time you know I don't know what that is maybe that's my Northern European heritage or something but I've always loved Tasmania but I barely know a soul there and can't convince the people I do know and love to come there with me. So that's the end of that. You're
0: going to miss out on that particular delight. Well, we'll, we'll discuss all the delights of every single state and territory, all in good time, in this <laughs> podcast. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you, Pete.
1: Likewise. See you, man. Take care. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.